We'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17 to 24. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him with accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by the deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the reading of God's word. Just a, a gentle reminder that we have our monthly prayer meeting on Wednesday. And uh, can I just give you a little nudge to send me your personal prayer request by tomorrow night at the latest so that we can complete the prayer outline and get it back to you in case you need to print it off before then. I think what we'll do now is we'll stand for prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, our Savior. You have promised to redeem us and to adopt us, to pardon our sins, to remake us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that the anvil on which you refashion us is the anvil of your word. And we pray that it may be to us this morning both sweet to our taste and yet a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. That it might be a sword that breaks through the very depths of our being and yet at the same time a balm that assures us of your grace, your pardon, and your power to transform our lives. And since you alone are able to speak to us truly and lastingly, we pray that by your Spirit, our Lord Jesus Christ would minister your word into our hearts, that we may sense him to be near and hear his voice calling us to himself. We ask it together for his great name's sake. Amen. Well, do please uh, sit and have your Bible open at the passage which Ruby read so beautifully for us. 
One of the greatest challenges I think that we face in living the Christian life is that by nature, all of us are conformists. Uh, the world, the world around us, is constantly trying to squeeze us into its mould. And very often we, we allow it to do so without even realising it. Uh, to prove the point, uh, a class of university students recently conducted an experiment on their lecturer. Uh, without telling him what they were doing... Uh, every time the lecturer went over to the left-hand side of the classroom, they would stop paying attention. Uh, they would look out of the window. Uh, other people would close their eyes. Or they would start yawning or just stare into space. But every time he went over to the right-hand side of the classroom, they would pay the closest possible attention. Uh, and the further right he went the more careful attention they would pay to his teaching. Now remember that the students didn't actually tell him what they were doing. He was completely in the dark. But by the second lecture, he spent 50% of the time on the right-hand side of the classroom sitting on the window so he couldn't have gone any further to the right. <clears throat> and by the time of the third lecture, it was 100%. Now what happened there? Well, his behavior had been shaped by the students without him even realizing it. And by the way, please don't try that here on Sunday mornings. Um, <laughs> if I see you students yawning during the sermons, I shall know precisely what's going on. But the serious point is that this is the challenge that all of us actually face in living the Christian life. So in Ephesians, Paul is writing to a church that's largely made up of Gentiles, i.e. non-Jewish men and women, who were born and raised in Ephesus. And in verse 17, please look at it, that Paul lays down the challenge of the Christian life. Verse 17, Paul says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now think about what he's saying there. He's saying, you Gentiles, stop living like Gentiles. Now I wonder if you can see how odd, how radical, actually, that statement is. I mean, think about it for a moment. Um, for example, if you were born and raised here in Cape Town, then you grew up in the atmosphere of Cape Town culture. But now, um, you're a Christian. And the Apostle Paul comes along and he says, well, as Christ's special ambassador and with the full authority of heaven, I insist you stop living like Cape Townians. That's pretty odd, isn't it? Actually sounds really, really difficult. And it doesn't actually matter whether you were born in Cape Town or whether you were born in South Sudan or Zimbabwe or whatever it was. The same principle applies. And that's not going to be easy, is it, for any of us. But you see, what Paul is saying here crops up all over the New Testament. That is that 
If our Christian profession is to be taken seriously, there's got to be, there's got to be a radical change of lifestyle. Now, of course, believing the truth is important, but because people today will say they believe just about anything, Christ says that the only proof that my faith is real is that I put it into practice. The only proof that I really am a child of God is that I actually start living like one. That's logical, it's common sense, but as we strive to walk it out, it does mean, doesn't it, that we're often going to find ourselves out of step with the people around us. So, the members of every church family need to decide, need to agree with one another that if we are going to follow Christ, that we are prepared to be different. Now, how are we going to do that? Paul says it starts in the mind. It starts with the way that we think. See, according to verse 17, the reason the pagans live the way they do is because of the futility of their thinking. Now, what does he mean by that? Very important to understand two things Paul does not mean. He's not saying that all pagans, that all unbelievers are ignorant savages. He's not saying that. In those days, the culture around Ephesus was the most intellectually advanced in the world. Uh, they produced some of the finest philosophers and thinkers the world has ever seen. Paul is not questioning that. Equally, Paul is not saying that the Christian life is all about mind over matter. You know, that we can all live a victorious Christian life if only we try hard enough. No, Paul is not saying either of those two things. What he is saying in this passage is that if you are a Christian, you have been given a new mind. You've been given an ability to think differently that you didn't have before. And Paul's message is that the Christian life starts with learning to use our new minds in the right way by thinking clearly. And in the passage, he gives us three priorities for clear Christian thinking. And it's really, really important that we get hold of these because they're the foundation for the priorities in Christian living that we're going to be looking at together next Sunday morning. So the principle in the text is this. Christian thinking leads to Christian living. And we're not going to make any progress whatsoever in the Christian life if our thinking is shaped by the culture rather than by Christ. So what then are the priorities for healthy Christian thinking? Number one. Paul says, think clearly about your past. Think clearly about your past. Verses 17 to 19. Now, I think it's very easy, isn't it, for us to forget 
at what we were like before Christ took hold of us. I don't particularly enjoy thinking about that time in my life any more than I suppose you do. But you see, Paul isn't actually asking us to wallow in the misery uh, of some of the things we might have said and done in those days that we're now rather embarrassed about. No, rather what he wants is that we should think clearly about the desperate condition from which we've been rescued. And that's really, really important, you see, because it's what keeps us going as Christian people uh, in those times when we're tempted to give up. So in these verses, Paul paints a devastating picture, I think, of the lives of men and women who leave God out of their thinking. So come with me to verse 18. Verse 18, Paul says they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, friends, the problems all start with that little phrase right at the end of verse 18. And what happens when a person hardens his heart against the word of God? What does that mean? What are we talking about there? Well, it means that they hear God's word, uh, perhaps in a service like this. They might actually even recognize it as truth from God. But they make a conscious and deliberate decision to reject it. Now, the Bible talks about that as hardness of heart. And friends, it is a spiritual disease from which there is no cure by any human means. Let me show you why that is the case. Please keep a finger in Ephesians. Turn back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Exodus chapter 9, verse 33. While you're turning there, let me give you the context. You know it pretty well. You'll remember God sent Moses to Pharaoh in Egypt, commanding him to let Israel go. Pharaoh refused, so God sent a series of plagues. And each time, Pharaoh appears to change his mind, and he asks God for mercy. But then as soon as each plague stops, Pharaoh hardens his heart once again. We're going to pick up the text at verse 33 of chapter 9. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, and the heart of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. Now, friends, follow the pattern. God shows mercy to Pharaoh 
giving him an unmistakable display of his divine sovereignty. Why do I say that? Well, God gave the plague, God stopped it. Well, only God could do that. But you see, instead of responding in humble repentance and faith, Pharaoh hardens his heart, he refuses to obey God's command, and he does it again and again and again. So pay very close attention to what God says to Moses in chapter 10, verse 1. God says, I have hardened his heart. You see, friends, the terrifying conclusion is that Pharaoh had actually reached the point where he couldn't respond to God's word, even if he wanted to. He was the most powerful man in the world. He was surrounded by some of the most brilliant people in the world. But God had hardened his heart. And as a result, Pharaoh was darkened in his understanding, separated from the life of God, and in the end, Pharaoh lost everything. He lost his son, he lost his army, and in the end, he lost his own soul. Well, come back to Ephesians 4, because Paul is saying, you see, that by nature, all of us are like Pharaoh. Because God has actually given us an unmistakable display of his divine sovereignty in the eyewitness testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He's also given us a crystal clear explanation of what that means for us when we surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. means a fresh start, doesn't it, with sins forgiven, eternal life, a new family. But you see, this command from heaven comes with a command to stop living like pagans. To stop worshipping everything God has made rather than worshipping God himself. But uh, most people say, no, no I'm, so, I'm so sorry, I can't do that. I can't do that. They say, no, you're asking far too much. Because they want their lifestyle to be as close to their neighbours as possible. Isn't that right? So they reject the message. And the plain teaching of Scripture is that when we do that and we go on doing it, in the end, God hardens our hearts so we can't actually respond to the gospel, even if we want to. Look where that leads. Uh, verse 18 says that our understanding becomes darkened. That means that we are incapable of thinking clearly about our lives and the world around us. It means that our thinking is futile, it's meaningless. It's the same word you find in Ecclesiastes. And where does that road lead? Verse 19, look at this. Having lost all sensitivity... They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. That phrase, having lost all sensitivity, is actually only one word in the original, and literally it means callous, 
So it's describing the person who has got no sense any longer of right and wrong. So they plunge absolutely recklessly into an immoral lifestyle, not caring what anybody else might think or feel. And in the end, they find themselves slavishly addicted to behavior that God hates, but without ever actually finding the satisfaction that they're looking for. And that's that's the irony, isn't it? A couple of years ago, I received the news that a university friend of mine had died. He was one of life's truly colorful characters. He was terrific company. As a young man, he was extremely bright. Um, He went on to become a very successful businessman. Uh, But business became his whole life. And uh, in the course of his career, he was on the boards of more than 100 companies. I think most businessmen would say that one or two companies is perfectly adequate. But he was on the boards of over 100 companies. And that restlessness in that area of his life spilled over into his private life. Uh, He was divorced three times. Uh, He openly admitted that he was incapable of being faithful to any woman. And uh, in the newspaper obituary, his third wife said, we will miss him, but he was like a runaway train. And you see what she was saying by that statement was, he was completely out of control. Now, you know, I know the details of our lives before God took hold of us will vary from person to person. Uh, We may not have reached the depths of verse 19 uh, before we were saved. But can I say to you all this morning that the basic picture is the same for every Christian. Every Christian should be able to look back and say, I know that God has rescued me from a hard heart, a dark mind, and a restless lifestyle. You see, if we're going to live useful Christian lives, we do need to think clearly about that and never forget it. But secondly, Paul says, think clearly about your conversion, verses 20 and 21. I think you probably agree with me that one of the most encouraging experiences in church family life is hearing the stories of how our brothers and sisters uh, were converted to Jesus. And of course we know that uh, God uses lots of different ways to reach out and rescue people and we're all going to have different ways of describing how God did that. And that's a good and right thing. But at the heart of our personal stories will be the same experience that Paul describes in verse 20. Have a look at verse 20. Paul says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Becoming a Christian, says Paul, is coming to know Christ. And we have to pause on that. Because the word translated know in our Bibles is rather unusual. Uh, If you are the proud possessor of an ESV Bible, you'll find that it translates that phrase as learning Christ. 
did not learn Christ that way. Now that's a really odd way of talking, isn't it? Uh, You know, we might say, well, when I went to school, I learned about Nelson Mandela. But I've never heard anybody say, well, when I went to school, I learned Nelson Mandela. Have you ever heard anybody say that? So what does Paul mean? Well, well, the Greek word here was used to describe a disciple coming and attaching himself to a Jewish rabbi and following him around as he went on his teaching tours. And it meant, you see, that he didn't simply learn the rabbi's theology, though we hope he did, but he also learned to copy his lifestyle. In other words, the, the disciple learned from his teacher's lips and from his life in the context of a committed relationship. Now that, my friends, is what it means to be a Christian. You commit yourself to Christ, and then for the rest of your life, you learn the truth of Christ's teaching And you also learn to follow his example, his lifestyle. That's what it means to learn Christ. Now, please, will you notice the sequence? You know, I don't learn all there is to learn about Jesus before I commit myself to him. No. He calls me first, perhaps through a talk like this or through the testimony of a Christian friend, and then the learning process begins. But if that's all we say about this text, actually, I would be depriving you of the treasure that Paul has buried here for us to discover. Because the Christian teaching that converts dead sinners with hard hearts is not merely human teaching. No, it isn't. It's actually supernatural. How do we get there? Well, notice in verse 21 that Paul is talking about what happened when the Christians in Ephesus first heard about Christ from the apostles. And when that was happening, Paul says, surely you heard of him. But friends, we absolutely miss the treasure in the text unless I tell you that the little word of is not actually there in the original In other words, what Paul is saying here, and I think this is mind-blowing, is that whilst your human teachers were telling you about Christ, what you actually heard was Christ himself. Now, of course, we can't explain this, can we, in simply human terms. But millions of Christians throughout the ages know exactly what he means. For many years, uh, Tim Keller was the pastor of a large, very famous church in New York City. Listen to the way that he describes his own conversion. He was in his early 20s, and he was at a young adults meeting listening to a talk on Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, Hebrews 1, 3 says that Christ is holding all things together by his powerful Word. And then the speaker gave the following illustration, which I hope will appear on the screen. He said, if the distance 
between the Earth and the Sun, which is 92 million miles, were the thickness of this piece of paper. See this piece of paper? Not very thick. But if that 92 million miles were the thickness of that piece of paper, then the distance between here and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the distance between here and the end of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is just a tiny speck of dust in the part of the universe we can see. And then the speaker said this, if Hebrews 1.3 is true, that Christ is holding all things together by his powerful word, then is he the kind of God you want to ask into your life to be merely your personal assistant? Who are you living your life for? And God used that to bring Tim Keller to Christ. Now, what was happening there? Think about it. There was a human speaker. There was also truth about Christ from the Holy Scriptures, Hebrews 1 verse 3. There was an absolutely brilliant illustration and a powerful application. What was the application? What have you done with Jesus, who holds the whole universe together with his word, is he merely your personal assistant? Or is he perhaps just a little bit more than that? And Tim Keller says, you see, that when he heard that, it was as if God was talking to him personally. I know that some of you might have had a similar experience. You, know, you were listening to someone give a Bible talk. Maybe nobody else thought it was particularly special. But for you, it was as if God was speaking to you personally. Now that's what happens, you see, at our conversion. And suddenly, a whole new life starts. God opens our eyes to see more and more clearly just who Jesus is. And uh, as that happens, the hardness of our hearts is melted, melted by God's love. And the ignorance of darkened minds is replaced, isn't it, by the truth of God's word. And we suddenly find that we have a brand new appetite, not for futility or impurity, but for Christ, for his word, and for his people. So friends, can you see that in order to walk out our Christian lives obediently, we do need to think clearly and often about our conversion. But then thirdly and lastly, Paul says, think clearly about your new self, verses 22 to 24. Television producers have discovered over the last couple of decades that we have a kind of endless fascination with makeover programs. Have you found that? Um, so a few years ago, there was a series on DSTV called What Not to Wear. And uh, each week, the fashion experts would ambush a fashion disaster and uh, tell them everything that was wrong with what they were wearing. And uh, they would then offer them cash 
if they would only throw out their own wardrobe and go along to the clothing shop and buy something decent. And in every programme, which actually became a bit formulaic by the end, there was usually a moment of tears when the helpless victim sort of stood in front of a mirror in the changing room and realised just how terrible his clothing choices had been. But uh, by the end of the show, the experts have got them back on track and everyone lives happily ever after. In these verses, the Apostle is giving us a spiritual what not to wear. He's telling us that if we're Christians, God expects us to think clearly about our spiritual wardrobe. Not just once a week when we come to church, but every day, every single day, there is something to put off and there is something to put on. And I do want you to look at these verses carefully with me. Verse 22, Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, Paul here, you see, is teaching us something absolutely fundamental about Christianity. He's reminding us that becoming a Christian is being made new by an act of God. It's not something we do for ourselves. God has got to do it. And it's about being given an entirely new identity, a new self. That, of course, is why Paul says elsewhere that the Christian is someone who can say about themselves, the old has gone, the new has come. So when God looks at us, he chooses to see Christ, and that is a very, very wonderful thing. But you and I also know perfectly well, don't we, that the old self doesn't just go away overnight. In fact, he keeps on trying to reassert himself, doesn't he? He does in my life. So you and I have got a daily responsibility to put off the habits of the old life. Now, one of the commentators, Kent Hughes, puts it rather brilliantly when he says this, quote, those who live holy lives do so by repeated putting-offs. The problem is the old garments are so comfortable and natural. Not only that, many of us have worn them so long that they naturally drape over us, and we scarcely know we're wearing them until the Holy Spirit reproves us. If you're fighting lust, it must daily be shed, that is equally true, he says, of pride and bitterness, covetousness, and all their relatives. Many Christians stumble because they don't realize this. But the truth is that our sins will have to be put off daily as long as we live, end quote. Now, how do we do that? Well, remember that we said at the beginning that God has given us new minds. 
That's what Paul says in verse 23. As we learn Christ, the Holy Spirit renews our minds, helping us to see that as Christians we've been created in the likeness of God with a new capacity for righteousness and holiness that we didn't have before. Yes, the old self is still there. Yes, he is. But God has given us this new power to live lives that are genuinely pleasing to him. But the only way that we're ever going to do that is by learning to think clearly about who we are and about all that God has done for us in Christ. Let me leave you with this one thought this morning, which I hope will be a compelling illustration for you. Think back for a moment, will you, to the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. You don't need to turn to it. We did look at it together, didn't we, a few weeks ago. Do you remember the story? Lazarus was in the tomb, and in the tomb, he was wrapped up in bandages, wasn't he? Do you remember that? The the bandages were the appropriate clothing for the grave. But uh, Jesus spoke to him, and the word of Jesus brought Lazarus to life. Do you remember, as Lazarus staggered out of the tomb, what was the first thing that Jesus said to him? Anybody know? Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, you see, quite obviously, if you think about it, Lazarus couldn't live a useful life in his grave clothes, could he? And the point is, neither can we. And yet, I I think that is precisely what many Christians are trying to do. They're still far too wrapped up in the habits and the attitudes of the old life. So it's not surprising, really, is it, if they keep falling over. But Christ commands us, by the power of the new life that he's given us, to take off the grave clothes of the old life. And then every day, we must put on our new spiritual garments, because... We've been created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And what that means in practice we'll discuss next Sunday morning, so do please make sure you're here. But for now, let's pray. Father, we we thank you for reminding us that there is a battle raging for control of our minds every day, every moment of every day. The world around us is striving to pull us back into its way of thinking. And our sinful nature wants to do it. But you have given us new minds with a new capacity to think clearly about who we are and how you want us to live. So, Lord, as we go out into the world this week, help us to put off the habits of the old life, to say no to them, and consciously to put on our new identity as those created to be like you, 
May the fruit of your spirit ripen in each of our lives, even this week, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake.